But his goal was to overthrow the government of Ukraine and to end Ukraine's right to exist as an independent country. Those were not things that the West was going to be willing to negotiate. So the, the demands that he put out there were really an excuse to end Ukraine's ability to exist as an independent country. Welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. My name is Chris Park, and I am joined by my co-host, Will. Since its founding in 1949, the importance of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization has waxed and waned, as different member states pursued their own foreign policy and security priorities. In recent years, the future of NATO was very much under threat, especially as former President Trump criticized the organization and, according to former officials, even came close to pulling out of NATO. The ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine perhaps provides a moment of clarity for NATO's purpose in ensuring security in Europe and elsewhere around the world. In this episode, Dr. Golgeyer joins us to discuss NATO response to the situation in Ukraine and the potential for NATO renewal. Dr. James Goldgeier is a professor of international relations at American University, where he previously served as dean of the School of International Service. He's also a visiting scholar at Stanford's Center on International Security and Cooperation, as well as visiting scholar at the Brookings Institution. He's also held a number of public policy appointments, including Director for Russian, Ukrainian, and Eurasian Affairs on the National Security Council staff. We hope you enjoy today's episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. In December 2020, you were on this podcast to discuss the potential for NATO following President Biden's election. Could you give our listeners a brief overview of NATO and when and why it was founded? Well, um, NATO was founded in 1949. Uh, At that time, the big concern in Europe was that the Soviet Union, having occupied the eastern half of Europe, uh, would not stop there and would uh, continue on west and would, um, if not uh, occupy uh, Western Europe as well, would foment revolution there and uh, would harm the prospects for uh, democracy and market economies to flourish in the Western half of Europe. And so the United States and Canada joined 10 West European countries to found NATO uh, in 1949 with uh, at its core, Article 5, which says that an armed attack against one member of the alliance shall be considered an armed attack against them all, uh, which means that it was a collective defense uh, organization. And primarily, the the thinking was that it was about having the United States be there to defend Western Europe. And precisely because of that commitment... NATO is in the headlines today for its response to the ongoing situation in Ukraine. But before we delve into Ukraine and current events, can you discuss how NATO as an alliance has fared in recent years? Has NATO entered this crisis as a strong alliance? Well, NATO is, a, I think NATO has shown in this crisis that it is, in fact, a strong alliance. It, it, it is unified because of the Russian aggression. And in fact, every time that we might think that NATO would sort of drift and lose its focus and and have more disunity, uh, 
Russian aggression always manages to bring it together. It was it was Soviet aggression that led to its founding in 1949. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, 12 members. It now has 30 members. Uh, these countries are committed to one another's defense. And absent Russian aggression, there would be lots of discussion about where the main threats were and lots of disagreement. And it's not even clear that the United States would have maintained its interest in NATO and in European security in the same way that it now is showing. Um, But uh, especially since 2014, uh, with the first Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, NATO has renewed its sense of purpose. Last time you were on the podcast, we talked at length about how President Trump approached NATO. How has the alliance fared in the past five years or so? Yeah, well, President Trump was not a big fan of NATO, and his views, as some of his other views are, are longstanding. They go back to the 1980s, a view that countries like the Europeans or and also the Japanese, who aren't in NATO but are also, of course, a U.S. ally, that these countries got rich during the Cold War because they didn't have to do much to provide for their security because we were doing all the work. We were spending the money to provide for their security. And certainly other presidents had criticized Europeans for not doing more. Uh, But Trump really seemed to view NATO as a protection racket, basically that countries, these European countries should be paying us, uh, that... um, that if we were going to provide for them, they should do stuff for us. It, it, what, he, he wasn't really looking at this as a, as a group of mutual uh, of countries that had mutual interests uh, and wanted to work together. And he was particularly fixated on something that NATO had decided in 2014 after the first Russian invasion of Ukraine, and that was to have all the countries of NATO aspire to spend 2.2%. Of their GDP on defense uh, by 2024. That was the that was the goal outlined in in 2014. Very few countries in NATO at that time were spending two percent, uh, and it was particularly the case that Germany didn't look like it was ever going to spend two percent of its GDP on defense. Uh, and this was something that upset Trump greatly. In every meeting, he was talking about the two percent uh, and just really fixated on whether these countries were spending the 2% that they had said they would do by 2024. Um, And of course, uh, I think absent this new invasion of Ukraine, I don't think the Germans would be spending 2% anytime soon, if at all. Uh, But, you know, a week or so ago, you had the German chancellor announce that, in fact, Germany was now going to spend 100 billion euros uh, on defense, uh, because uh, it needed to strengthen itself in the face of this Russian aggression. Right. And I was centering more toward Ukraine, um, contemporary events. Although Ukraine is not a member of NATO, the alliance has stated that the country is a, quote, close NATO partner that has worked toward establishing democracy and rule of law. Uh, could you give us a little discussion of the history of Ukraine and NATO relations and kind of explain why Ukraine has never actually joined NATO? Yeah, so so NATO, in 1994, NATO established something called the Partnership for Peace. And that was an effort to reach out to all of the countries of the former Warsaw Pact and former Soviet Union, including Russia, to create 
ties between the militaries and to create partnerships and help build capacity in the East and, and help these countries orient toward becoming a democracy. And then in beginning in 1999, NATO started taking in some of these countries as actual members. Uh, in 1999, Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic were the first three uh, of these former Warsaw Pact countries to join. And other countries from the former Warsaw Pact has, have joined, as well as some of the countries from the Western Balkans, um, Albania, Croatia, Montenegro, North Macedonia. So you have 30 members. Um, Ukraine really was not going to become a member of NATO. First of all, uh, for a long time, Ukraine wasn't interested in becoming a NATO member. Uh, prior to the 2014 Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, pr the population of Ukraine showed little interest in joining NATO. That interest grew greatly in the aftermath of the Russian invasion at that time. There have been conversations since then about the partnership, but NATO was being very careful not to provoke Russia, not to create a conflict between NATO and Russia. And so when war broke out uh, again, well, Russia has been fostering a war in eastern Ukraine since 2014. But when this new massive invasion took place, you know, NATO really wanted to be there to support Ukrainians defending themselves. NATO wasn't going to go be in Ukraine uh, fighting Russia, uh, but NATO could send equipment and weapons and could try to help the Ukrainians defend themselves. And so that's what NATO has done. And the U.S. and its NATO partners have sent equipment, anti-tank, anti-aircraft, you know, helmets, goggles, uh, ammunition, uh, all sorts of different kinds of, of supplies. Um, and a couple non-NATO members, but close partners, Sweden and Finland, have also remarkably, uh, given their, their neutral pasts, uh, they've also supplied uh, weapons to Ukraine. So you, you have a pretty strong outpouring of support, even though NATO itself is not going to be present in Ukraine as a fighting force. And just going back to what you said about how NATO is cautious not to provoke Russia, um, in early January, Russia gave the United States and other NATO states a series of ultimatums with regard to Ukraine. Um, what were Russia's demands and how did NATO respond? So Putin put out all sorts of demands. Um, one of them was he wanted a written guarantee that NATO would never include Ukraine. Um, he knew that would be rejected, even though Ukraine wasn't on any kind of path to membership. But NATO as an organization, Article 10 of the 1949 treaty says that NATO is open to any European state that can contribute to the alliance and uh, is uh, committed to the principles of the alliance, like democracy. And uh, so NATO doesn't really want to close the door formally to any European country. That includes Russia. Uh, but Ukraine wasn't on a path. So that, that demand he put out there was really more about having an excuse to do what he wanted to do. There were other things that the United States and NATO partners would have been happy to discuss with Putin if he were serious and had wanted to have those conversations and that includes sort of limiting the, the size and scale of military exercises, 
uh, or engaging in arms control. I mean, things that would have made Russia more secure and would have made the West more secure. And so they were things that the West wanted to pursue. But his goal was to overthrow the government of Ukraine and to end Ukraine's right to exist as an independent country. Those were not things that the West was going to be willing to negotiate. So um, so the, the demands that he put out there were really an excuse uh, to, uh, since there wasn't going to be a conversation, for example, about a written guarantee, um, they were used as an excuse and justification to do the things that he really wanted to do, which was install a puppet regime in Ukraine and end Ukraine's ability to exist as an independent country. We discussed how the invasion of Ukraine has been a moment of unity for NATO as an organization. NATO also clarified that its forces will not go into Ukraine. Can you talk to us more about what has been NATO's response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine thus far, beyond refusing to send in troops and coordinating response in terms of sanctions? Well, the response really has two, well, three major elements. So one is making clear that the international community finds this completely outrageous um, and horrific. Uh, And so you had a resolution condemning the invasion. You had 141 countries in the world supported that resolution. You had 38 abstentions and you had only five countries uh, that opposed a resolution condemning the Russian invasion. Russia Belarus, Eritrea, Syria, and North Korea. I mean, you know, the, the international community community is united that this is horrific. So that, so that was one step. We've just been talking about the provision of assistance to Ukraine to help it defend itself. This is serious and real, and, and we see the Ukrainians defending themselves. And then there was the effort to really punish Russia for this invasion through economic sanctions designed to bring a lot of pain, particularly to the people around Putin, who've gotten rich off the corruptness of his regime in the hopes that they would create the possibility for change in policy. Um, and, and, you know, that may not happen. Russians may continue as they are today to kill innocent civilians, bomb hospitals, just, you know, destroy a country for no good reason and and kill people, uh, which, you know, Putin has done before. He, he carried out indiscriminate bombings of civilians in Chechnya and in Syria previously. So this is not new for him. Uh, and the, the sanctions that have been in, imposed are extremely severe. And the Russian economy is going to pay a huge price. And uh, Putin, you know, through this ill-considered adventure and, um, you know, huge miscalculation on his part to uh, achieve the end of Ukraine as an independent country, he has wreaked havoc on the Russian economy and they are going back to a, a situation that, you know, hasn't existed in Russia since the collapse of the Soviet Union. I wanted to talk more about the American response to the invasion. Obviously, the United States can work 
and has been working with NATO partners through the, as you said, the three-pronged approach. But there is also a more unilateral path that the United States can take. Before we explore if there has been any daylight between NATO policy and U.S. policy, can you talk to us a bit about what the precise role of the United States is in NATO as an institution? Well, NATO is an institution that does operate by consensus. There are 30 members and, um, you know, it, it's a, they do consult with one another. But the United States is the leader of the organization. And the United States is the leader, you know, partly because it's the biggest country, the most powerful country, the country that, you know, has the biggest defense budget. And, um, you know, historically, uh, from the founding of NATO, has been the acknowledged leader of the alliance and and the U.S. role in Europe since the end of the Second World War. And of course, you know, helping to win the Second World War, the U.S. role has been significant. And so um, so it, it does have a major role to play to shape NATO policy. But but it is a consultative organization. The United States does not always get its way. Uh, and, um, you know, but it, it does help. Uh, foster dialogue and and lead the alliance. And that's something that the Biden administration has been very committed to, especially after the disinterest in the alliance shown by the previous administration. So since the beginning of the invasion of Ukraine, or perhaps even before, has there ever been an instance where the United States didn't get the policy um, coordination from NATO allies that it wanted? Has there been any daylight between the American response and that of NATO? I don't think so. I mean, there's a lot of talk right now about um, whether there was sort of what happened in the conversation about whether, for example, Poland would send its MiG jet fighters, you know, the former Soviet era jet fighters that have been upgraded, whether they would send those to Ukraine so Ukraine uh, could better defend themselves and then whether the United States would then transfer F-16s to Poland to make up for what they sent to Ukraine. And that's been public. I, you know, I think, I, I think there's people are making more of that than there really is. I, I mean, a big issue is that these jet fighters are, have been upgraded. Uh, the Ukrainians are not trained to fly them. You can't just, you know, sort of walk in, sit down in the, in the plane and then, you know, go off to battle. So, um, it, it wasn't clear that this really was, um, you know, something that that would manifest itself anyway. Uh, and so I, I think that, you know, that's sort of the biggest example we have of when it seems like NATO allies have disagreed. But I, in general, the, the allied countries are, are quite um, are quite on board with the with the response to Ukraine and you know, different ones have been tougher or, so, or well, tougher at different times and wanting to ramp up the, uh, you know, what NATO does in response. And I, I think in general that the unity has been pretty remarkable. Ukraine's President Zelensky has been requesting NATO to enforce a no-fly zone over his country. But NATO has so far refused to take this request. In response, President Zelensky has called the organization weak. Why is this such a contentious issue? Well, you know, you can understand President Zelensky's frustration. And I mean, here he is, he's, you know, he stayed, he and his government stayed, they didn't, 
have to. I think a lot of people, myself included, expected at the outset of this Russian assault that um, he and his government might leave for a place like Warsaw or another capital, uh, NATO capital, and set up a government in exile so that they wouldn't be captured and killed. And, you know, he decided that they should stay and, be, and he, you know, it's incredibly brave. And, um, and I sh- you know, it's got to be exhausting and he wants whatever help he can get. So you can imagine his frustration. Uh, but NATO does not want to go to war with Russia directly. And if you want to establish a no-fly zone, that means you have to set up air defenses and you means you have to have fly aircraft. And if a Russian plane flies into a no-fly zone, you shoot it down. And that would be war between NATO and Russia. And that NATO is not willing, at least at this point, it's not prepared for that. I think there's also some sense that a lot of the missiles that are raining down on Ukraine are not coming from Russian jets flying over Ukraine, but they're missiles that are being launched from Russian territory, from Belarusian territory. And so it's not clear what the how much it would matter if there were a no-fly zone. Um, but it's but it sounds like you know, it sounds like, oh, a no-fly zone, that means nobody's flying overhead. That's a good thing. Well, you've got to enforce a no-fly zone, and that means you've got to shoot down you've got to shoot down Russian planes. Uh, and also, you know, the Russians would establish, uh, might set up air defense cap- uh, capacity uh, near, or, or let's say on the roof of hospitals or other buildings. Um, and you, I mean, they've, they've done that in the past and you certainly don't want a situation where you've got NATO uh, having to deal with air defense targets that are, that are embedded in um, civilian uh institutions and buildings. And so uh, it's the right call that NATO is not establishing a no-fly zone, uh, but certainly President Zelensky's frustration and exhaustion and desire for as much help as possible, completely understandable. I mean, he's fighting for his life. He's fighting for his country's life. So certainly understandable that he would be frustrated. You laid out some arguments against a general no-fly zone. Some have floated the idea of a no-fly zone over humanitarian corridors. But would the same arguments against a general no-fly zone across all of Ukraine apply for this more seemingly more limited effort? Yeah, I don't know what a limited no-fly zone means. I mean, if you're enforcing a no-fly zone, you're enforcing a no-fly zone. That means that if, if Russian planes fly into that zone, you're shooting them down. So I, I just I just don't see any I, I don't see any willingness at this stage of the war for NATO to want to do that. Again, they don't want a direct war with Russia. All right. And turning the page a bit, uh, NATO is over 70 years old and has been involved in several different conflicts, uh, even if they did not involve military military operations to this scale. Um, what tools has the alliance historically employed to achieve its mission of collective security? Well, you know, for the most part, NATO hasn't really had to do military operations to protect itself. Now, the only time that Article 5 has been invoked was in the aftermath of the September 11th attacks on the United States. Our European and Canadian partners um you know, wanted to express their solidarity with the United States and that they would join with the United States to defend against future terrorist uh, actions. And so NATO did set up 
some ac actions to combat terrorism, uh, which is a threat to all members. Uh, and of course, NATO, the United States and NATO were in Afghanistan um, and had an international security assistance force there in Afghanistan uh, to try to maintain security and stability uh, in that country until the withdrawal from Afghanistan in 2021. Um, but other types of operations, I mean, NATO carried out airstrikes against Serbia in 1995 because of the, uh, the Serb uh, sponsored war against Bosnia-Herzegovina and against Croatia. Uh, and then uh, NATO did go to war against Serbia in 1999 uh, to protect the population of Kosovo. Um, so, you know, those, those weren't um, direct threats on NATO. So, so I mean, NATO's, NATO's been involved in all sorts of activities, um, and that includes providing humanitarian relief after the tsunami in, in Indonesia, for example, um, and uh, counter piracy operations off the coast of Africa to try to support the United Nations. So it's, uh, it's an organization that has engaged in a lot of activities, uh, but very few of them really to defend the member states, which have thankfully, and I think thanks to the alliance, largely been secure, except, of course, you know, most notably the 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 kind of terrorist actions uh, like the ones we saw on September 11th in the United States and other types of terrorist bombings against NATO countries. Right. And looking forward um, in Ukraine, what are NATO's policy options? Can it do more drawing from these historical activities that you've mentioned? Or is this a whole new playbook? Well, I think it's going to continue doing what it's doing. It's going to continue to try to hurt Putin economically. And I'm not sure that there's a resolution of this war as long as Putin remains in power. And I think that's the big question mark right now. Is he going to be able to stay in power? If he is, then I think he will continue his assault on Ukraine. Uh, and if those around him decide that, in fact, the pain from the economic sanctions is too great uh, or the costs to the Russian military are too great and they decide that he should no longer be in office and they can, they can make that change, then that might create the possibility for a way out of this war. But I just, I, given his goals of a new regime in, in Kiev and, uh, and the destruction of Ukraine as an independent country, I'm not sure that there's a resolution as long as he remains in power. Right. And given the backdrop of the conflict that we see today, uh, traditionally neutral European countries have expressed interest in potentially joining NATO. Uh, what do you think is the likelihood of NATO expansion in the next five years, especially looking at Finland, Sweden, Austria, Ireland? Well, I think, I mean, the ones that are that really are, are furthest along and, and have been the closest partners of those are, are Sweden and Finland. And, you know, this, this war has created more interest among the population, more support among those populations in joining. Uh, I think, you know, I think any of those countries, if they wanted to join NATO, I think they would be welcomed into NATO. But so it'll be interesting to see whether or not they pursue NATO membership. But, you know, they certainly have the, the ability to, to pursue that. And I, I, think, I think with Sweden and Finland, I think that we could we could really see that 
um, you, you know, you say the next five years, I think we could really see that within the next five years. And do you think this conflict will expedite um, this expansion or is this somewhat tangential? Yeah, no, I mean, it's all it's all about the fact that Putin's invading another country in this massive in this massive way. If you're Sweden and Finland, you're looking at this thinking, you know, maybe we need to be in the alliance so that we can be assured of our of our security. And, um, you know, the NATO allies like Estonia and Poland are a lot more secure than they would be if they weren't in NATO. And Sweden and Finland may decide that that's what they need as well. I mean, it would certainly break with their longstanding uh, approach to uh, their own national security, but it's certainly understandable in in light of what uh, Putin has shown he's capable of. Collective defense and Article 5 commitments has guided NATO for much of the 20th century. You said in the past that in the 21st century, NATO must adapt to expand its vision for collective security to confront a full range of threats to NATO members, you know, including you know, transnational threats like terrorism or climate change. Do recent events in Ukraine clarify NATO's purpose? What should the United States do and what should American partners in Europe do to strengthen the alliance? So there's no question that right now what's urgent is the Russian military assault on Ukraine and this war against Ukraine and and NATO members have to respond. NATO is going to be releasing its new strategic concept at its summit this summer in Madrid. The last time it issued a strategic concept was in 2010. Uh, There was no mention of China. There was a brief mention of climate change. I mean, NATO has to grapple with all of these issues. China is a threat to NATO members. It's not just a threat to the United States. It's also, you know, creates challenges and threats to European countries as well. Um, You know, it's it's not an organization that is going to be traveling to the Indo-Pacific, but the country's are going to need to think about how they work together in the face of the threat from China. And as a military organization, it's not really, you know, suited to combat climate change, but the countries of NATO all have a vested interest in doing something about climate change. And, you know, they need to think about how their own activities um, uh, contribute to climate change. I mean, military activities do contribute uh, to the problem, to the worsening of climate change. Um, and, you know, the, the, the Department of Defense, the Pentagon in the United States, I mean, has recognized this issue and, and it's an issue. A lot of, there are a lot of military bases that are in low lying areas like in Norfolk, Virginia, and climate change is going to affect those bases. So climate change will affect NATO operations. And so NATO needs to think about as an organization, how it responds to it and how the, at least the countries of NATO do their part. Uh, to the existential crisis that is climate change. So, you know, it, it, NATO has to focus on this, this horrific war against Ukraine by Russia. Uh, but that doesn't mean that China and climate change are going to disappear as threats to the alliance. Well, Dr. Goldgeier, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It was really a pleasure to have you and your expertise. Thanks for having me. It's always great to be with you. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. 
We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.